Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where I talk the talk with some truly fabulous guests over great food. Today we're heading in for lunch as this was recorded back in the depths of lockdown when I was working the delivery apps to get that food sent to our front doors. Peering at me over the takeaway boxes this time is the comedian, screenwriter, author, activist and host of the Guilty Feminist podcast, it's Deborah Francis White. But I do think if I'd been chosen for the, if I had blonde hair and I'd be chosen for that dance thing... It could all have gone so differently. Oh, I could be a pop star. But, you know, at that day, you go left. Hello, Deborah. Hello, Jay. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute delight to have you. Um, I mean, we've met, we have met once before. At a, we have. At a, at a music event where we were asked to choose a song that meant something to us. Um, That's right. It's it, called One Track Mind, and it, it was at Wilton's Music Hall. A beautiful space. Isn't it? Yeah. Remind me, which song did you choose? I'm a feminist Bart, don't judge me, because this is before the worst excesses of everything that R. Kelly had done came out. <laughs> okay. I chose, and it is an ironic, it was an ironic thing, R. Kelly's remix to Ignition, yeah. which relates to you, hot and fresh from the kitchen. Yeah, absolutely. That That's me all over. And some of the listeners may be thinking, but Deborah Francis White from The Guilty Feminist, how on earth was R. Kelly ever your favourite song? And it was a joke between me and my husband that we'd had many years before any in, anything incriminating had come out about R. Kelly. And so that became our song. And the joke was, you know, most people have a song that's like the Nightingale sang in Berkeley Square or something. Uh, I don't know what year I think this is. Um, yeah. <laughs> because, of course, we did meet uh, d- just before the war. Now, uh, <laughs> but some people have, you know, a very romantic song, The Way You Look Tonight, something like that. Yeah. And because of a joke, which was the moment that I stopped, R. Kelly was on MTV and there was a, it was a joke, which was a silly joke. You know, it took us like 20 minutes to stop laughing. And I said when we did, this is it, you know, this is happy. This, this joke isn't going to be any funnier in a bigger house with more money in the bank, with more, more success in our careers. This is it. This is happy. This is it right now. And so the whole treatise of the piece was around happiness and what happiness is and how elusive happiness is. And of course, as soon as you say, this is happy, trap it, lock the door, you know, you're inviting happiness to escape through the window. So it was a, it was, it was a treatise about happiness. And I kept coming back to the juxtaposing it with the lyrics of uh Ignition, which of course are a stand in sharp contrast. Let's say it that way. Um, Let's I, say it that I, I way. I can't do that piece anymore because I don't want to endorse R. Kelly and I don't want R. Kelly's song to be played for everyone because at the end they made you they made you play the song. But Jay, I'm sure you've not called me to talk about R. Kelly. No, I haven't. I've called you to talk about your takeaway skills. You did say on a, another podcast, because other podcasts are available, um, you said my delivery skills are incred. Oh. Um, this is I mean, in for lunch, out to lunch, in for lunch. I've sent you a takeaway. It's actually arrived before you managed to get on microphone. It's sitting there to your right, I think. Smell it. Well, it's it's called rice error, and rice error uh, is the delivery option that was launched when this whole crisis started by the people behind Bao. So Bao are a bunch of Taiwanese uh, outlets. They originally opened in oh, Soho, yeah. and then they opened one in, I think I've got one in Borough, and then they opened a place called Zoo. But they opened a thing called Rice Era because they're very, very cool and very, very hip. Okay. Um, and I have got now. you, I know you you don't eat red meat, so uh, prawn egg fried rice, which comes with uh, prawn, shia song, Sichuan mayo, crispy kale, 
you did say you eat a little chicken, and their Taiwanese fried chicken is very, very good. So I I've do. got you a small I box of that. I lapse on chicken. I try and be pescatarian, but sometimes I, I have a chicken lapse. Um, and then there's some exo corn, mushroom exo sauce with grilled corn and some wow. golden kimchi. This is so exciting. Have you got the same, Joe? I've gone to a place called Mama Lands, which does Beijing street food. And there's one mm. in Clapham, one in Brixton. So, And I do love their chicken wings. They are really, really good. Oh, this looks incredible. Oh, my God. Oh. I is feel it, I should have chopsticks with this, though. Do you have a kitchen? Does it have chopsticks? Yeah, I'm Would sure you like it does. To get some? Yeah. yeah, one second. I'll go and get some chopsticks. This is cold. I don't know. What is this? Oh, that's Horlicks ice cream. Should I put that in the freezer? I think you should. <laughs> this is getting complicated, isn't it? When you were when you were fourteen, your uh, your family joined the Jehovah's Witnesses, mm. and you have said that that was sort of a dangerous time to be a part uh, to, as as a teenager to be taken to the Jehovah's Witnesses because it had a certain addictive quality to it. When you're an adolescent, your brain is very plastic. And when you're a teenager, you're looking for new tribe. And evolutionary psychology would tell us that that's because you sort of need to be separating from your mum and dad when you're a teenager and finding new tribes so that the human race can continue. This means that adolescence is an ideal time to get into heavy metal or ketamine or Jesus. Yeah. Um, because the new tribe I found was this, the Jehovah's Witnesses who are a high control group. Um, and I say they're a high control group or a cult because they won't let you have any friends outside of it. But the punishment for for uh, contravening any laws or or just wanting to leave of your own accord is shunning. Nice. And that means everyone cuts you off. So your friends pretend. I had friends who got disfellowshipped, and you just see them out, and you just have to pretend you couldn't see them. So that that's very frightening when you're a of young person, that you're going to be cut off from your family, all of your friends. What did this do to your relationship with your parents, who presumably mm. were quite into it? I was, you have to understand, I was completely brainwashed. Yeah. So it wasn't like I was going along to please them. I mean, to some, to some level, of course, you know, they wanted to join. And, but I was always quite God-bothering, to be honest, Jay, before well, that. Even before you, you I, joined? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, as a kid, I, I remember going to, um, this is not a story I tell very much, um, but I went to a new school because I always think there's a reason, there's a reason some moment has triggered your capability to get sucked into a cult. Or And I also think the question is not what kind of person joins a cult. The question is at what point in your life are you most, are you most susceptible to join a cult? Yeah. And when I was uh, six, six or seven, I went to a new school so I used to spend lunchtime alone until I made some friends. And it took me a term or so to kind of get involved with one of these groups. And I'd been sent to Sunday school on a Sunday morning, just your regular old Church of England. And I think the Sunday school teacher had said, God is always there and he's always your friend. So you can always talk to God. So, I mean, I was like... And you I, took that literally? Well, well, I'd had loads of friends at the other school because I'd been, you know, been there on the first day. And so I had really good friends. So I was like... Oh, I'm really all on my own for lunch. So I thought, well, I could always talk to God. And so I did, you know, I developed a, a quite good relationship with him. But the thing is, after a while, I did sort of want friends my own age because he's, um, I mean, he was just, he just wasn't that interested in skipping, jacks, no. hula hoop, any of the big three. They were the big three. Which actually is a bit of a surprise given God is meant to be all knowing. So you would think that that would include. In a Cartesian sense, the Descartes sense of God being perfect, it should include skipping and jacks. Well, with the Holy Trinity, you'd think two yeah. two of them could hold the end of the rope and one of them could skip in the middle. I mean, they, they, it feels designed 
designed. But because um, skipping was big when I, I was at that, school, and I, I but yeah. ne- never, never, he I never. Think the Judeo Christian tradition is Mr. Trick there. If I, if I'm absolutely <laughs> honest. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, I mean, he was just older than me. I mean, he was infinity old, and I was six. So yeah, our teacher was called Miss Power. And she was not named by Dickens, but she could have been. Nominative determinism. And she stood up and she said, um, right, there's going to be an inter-school dancing competition. Five girls, basically to be in like a little girl band. So I thought, I reckon I can get picked for this because I can, you know, I'm currently, I'm currently in training for this. And if I get into this girl group, that'll be cool. I'll be cool, instant friends. The girl group will be my friends. Um, I was practicing and practicing. And then the following week, the day came and Miss Powers said, um, right, we're going to pick the girls today. All the blonde girls stand up. And then she told, told them all to go over to a wall. And then she went down the wall going, you, 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 and Jan- mm-hmm. you and Janine Henney. Now, Janine Henney was, was, uh, had brown hair, but she was an incredible dancer. Like she'd won awards. She had trophies. And it was at that point in my life that I realised, Jay, that if you were brunette, you needed a talent. <laughs> it's not enough. It's not enough. Your hair colour is not going to see you through. That day, another girl said to me, I go to Girls' Brigade on a Monday night. Do you want to come to Girls' Brigade? And Girls' Brigade is like girl guys with yeah. added God. So you, it seems to be what you're saying is the Jehovah's Witnesses thing didn't come out of nowhere. You, you, you were on the pitch already. Um, but at 19, you leave Australia altogether and you head to the UK. Was that about putting distance between yourself and that experience? Yeah, I came to the UK on an ersatz gap year, ostensibly to knock on doors, but really I was becoming very disillusioned with the Jehovah's Witnesses and I, I was I think I was looking for an escape hatch. So you left the Jehovah's here in the UK rather than in Australia eventually oh, I the could real break. Never have list- I could never have left in Australia. Because it's your whole world, it's your whole life. Right. And being shunned is so painful and you have nothing else to go to. And again, there's this little gap in the biography, which I've always been intrigued by. It says, and then you went to Oxford to study English. Mm-hmm. It's bloody hard to get into Oxford. You well, need a kind of support structure around you and help. And how did you do that? I was going to improv classes in London. And because that was the thing, that was a little escape hatch I had when I was a Jehovah's Witness. I used to read this book called Keith Johnston's Impro and sometimes slip off to workshops, which I wasn't meant to do. So I was doing that. Um, I was applying. The one thing I desperately wanted to do was go to university and I'd been stopped from doing that. So I was like, that's my plan now. I'm going to go to uni. And somebody at, at the Impro workshop said, why aren't you applying to Oxford? You should apply to Oxford. They'd love people like you. You speak Japanese. You speak sign language. You do improv. You, you know, you're international. You, you've, they just love all that. They love all that, and you're not, you know, you, you're in your, you're in your early twenties, so you've got a, um, you know, you've got something about you. Yeah. I did have very good marks from school. I had very good grades from my school in Australia, but the interview part, I, I'll be honest with you, I was doing so much impro, I really blagged it. <laughs> the, the tutor, he's probably out there listing somewhere, asking me about my favourite poet and my favourite poetry. And so I chose Australian poetry because he's not going to know anything about this and just riffed and just, I mean, I said all sorts and he was just a bit black, a bit like, well, this is very interesting, but I can't really talk about that. Uh, I can't really ask you any more questions about that. So he asked me about a poem. Did, did you actually make some of the poetry up or did you, was it real stuff that you... I did mean, you, did you? Border, yeah, I mean... Borderline? Borderline, yeah, made it up, just made it up. Just was like, <laughs> I had a bit and I thought, oh, I just talked with great confidence. Um 
But I do remember him challenging me. I'd said the poem was about something and, you know, he was challenging me that it wasn't really about that. And he asked me a question and I remember, and this was a deliberate thing that I did, I did this deliberately. I went, I, I got like elated yeah. by his disagreeing with me <clears throat> and a bit, and I went, oh, that's, you know, I said, well, that's so interesting that you've seen it that way or something like that. I was visibly elated on purpose um, by Challenging him you. playing yeah. devil's advocate. And I thought, because he's got three years of having to sit opposite me in tutorials and do I look frightened when he questions me or am I going to be on for it? Because they can, all of the facts, all of the information, that can be taught to you. But do you have curiosity? Are you engaged? Are you excited? Uh, now, which bit are you eating? You're still on the rice. I'm still on the rice, but I've, I've had right. a little bit of the, the chicken. And uh, I'm going to, can you possibly hold it up to the camera so the fine producer, I'm going to. Oh God, this is, there's not enough left to make meat. this worthwhile now. Oh, there is, there is. We go like that and then we get a shot and it all works. Um. When was it you started focusing on the idea of being a stand-up? Well, I was in the debating team at school and I was always third speaker and I my way of winning the debate would be, would would I wouldn't prepare anything because third speaker's meant to sum up. So I would sit there writing rebuttal, really funny rebuttal, which I don't know, I just could do it. I just had a skill, I could just do it. Um, and then when I got up, I would sort of take down what the opposition said with jokes, basically. Uh, but I just it's just a thing I like to do. And then when I was a Jehovah's Witness, you're not allowed to, women aren't allowed to speak from the platform, but you, you are allowed to do little plays. And uh, so I realized the only way I was gonna get to perform, because I'd always been a performer, uh, was to do these sketches. And you only got to a year, but I realized lots of people didn't like speaking in public, so they'd pretend to be sick. So I said to the brother running the Theocratic Ministry School, if anyone doesn't show up, I'll be the understudy. Just tell me on the night. I'll write it really quickly in the back room. And he went, great. So then I got like 15 a year. And I realised, because to me, the only thing I was interested in is how many laughs I could get. How many laughs I could get. I used to, I worked out pretty quickly that Jehovah's Witnesses find nothing funnier than taking the piss out of the born-again Christians. So I'd write these like funny sketches where in a Socratic way, I would get them to read a load of scriptures until they'd back themselves into a corner. Um, Jehovah's Witness thought this is so funny. I, also, women were allowed to um, put their hands up and answer, like they have a Q&A, you know, they read a paragraph and then you're meant to say exactly what's in the paragraph, but put it into your own words to make sure you, you it's clear you've understood it. And I thought I will put it into my own words. So again, it was how many times could I get called on? How many laughs could I get? So that was how I trained in a weird way. Um, and I ended up getting asked to do one of these funny sketches, like in a big stadium convention. Like, you'll always find a way. If you're funny and you, that's what you love, you'll always find a way. And so when I came out, I did improv for a long time, but after a while, I wanted to do something that was my voice. And I realized that I liked the bit where I was hosting, emceeing an improv show and talking to the audience and doing crowd work. I liked that more than I liked pretending to be people I wasn't really. And so I thought, do you know what? I'm going to take an, a stand-up comedy show to Edinburgh, which actually isn't how you do it. You're meant to go on the circuit and do build up five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. But I didn't know that. I just wrote out a show and took it to Edinburgh. And then the following year, I did it again. And that show got picked up by a producer and toured. So it just, it, I've never really done the circuit. Not properly. I mean, psychologically, you know, I've talked to quite a few comedians, partly for this and elsewhere. And I know, I know a few. It's a workout. It's a psychological workout. It's love me, hate me, laugh at me. Do you think there's something in you which makes you, you know, temperamentally suited to that being put through the ringer? I 
Because there must have been times when, when your jokes died. They're always oh, are. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, Edinburgh's, I mean, I'll tell you, on the last Saturday and Sunday, usually one of those days is the greatest show of your life and one of those days is hell on earth. The Monday, you should not do because everyone's going home and it's just, you know, producers want you to do it because we might as well get the last few pounds out of people. But if you've had an elating weekend... Stop there. Oh, stop there. Please stop there. Anyway, one day I was asked to do the Monday and so I had a half house and I think... And the Sunday show had been a riot and I had a half house. And early on I had a joke that was a banker joke. It always it works. doesn't. You can't fail. And I, if that joke got a huge roar, this was I knew it was going to be a good show. And if that show got a medium-sized chuckle... I knew it was going to be a tough show. That joke got nothing. Well, nothing. absolute silence. Absolute silence. Like you you just carried on telling a bit of a story and hadn't got to the punchline. But I just stopped and stared at them. <laughs> and this is 30 days in. So it, it it it's not me. I know how to deliver that joke. This is the first day it's got silence. And I just stopped at that point and I just went, yeah, see, this is the Monday. This is the last Monday. This is what it is. It's not our fault. It's not your fault or not my fault. It's Monday's fault. I mean, it is just what it is. And there's nothing any of us can really do about it. I mean, I suppose what we could do collectively is decide to pretend that it's Sunday and like fuck Monday. with Monday. <laughs> and just we could all behave <laughs> like it was Sunday. And what's Monday going to do about it? You know, and I said, so should we just pretend it's Sunday? And they all just went, yes. And then they just got on and it became such a wonderful show. And it was because I'd blamed something external. I hadn't kind of gone, oh, you know, it's you. And I hadn't gone, oh, it's me. Like I hadn't beaten up on myself or them. I just externalised the problem. And then everyone was like, fuck Monday. We've paid the same as the Sunday audience. We We're having deserve, a Sunday show. We deserve a yeah. Sunday show. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Also from something else, The Fault Line, with legendary journalist and broadcaster David Dimbleby. This is the story of the crisis that unfolded over the 18 months following the terrorist attacks on the 11th of September 2001. A crisis that led to war in Iraq. This will not be a campaign of half measures, and we will accept no outcome but victory. From something else, this is The Fault Line. Bush, Blair and Iraq. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now. Have you tried the corn? It's so, so exo delicious. sauce is mm. one of those bits of Asian sort of alchemy where they it's all umami. And I think they said mushroom exo sauce, so in other words, rather than pork or whatever. It's it's te the texture is delicious as well. It's kind of crunchy, but it's got the soft sauce around it. You also angling for my job. Um, <laughs> these, these, these food descriptions. So my chicken wings, which are something I have lived off for quite a while. They're, they're sort of Mummerland's chicken wings. They come with a dry exo sauce, chili sauce mm. hybrid thing. I'll definitely be having this again. This thing which now sits very front and centre of your life, which is the Guilty Feminist podcast. Mm. Um, you 
were into podcasting before, dare I say it, quite a lot of us stumbled onto that territory. Mm. What was it that made you think that this could be a good idea? Did you know somebody else who was doing it? Had you heard something? It was sort of bubbling up. I think it was became the year of the podcast, 2015. You know, I, it was a very funny Amy Schumer joke. I used to want to meet my soulmate, and now I just settle for a man who doesn't have his own podcast. <laughs> um, I wouldn't have done it if I'd been allowed on the telly. But women were not allowed on the telly at all then, almost at all. Like, there were two or well, three. We're, we're not talking about the 1970s or something. We're talking about no. 20, you know, 2010, 2015. Talking so- about 2015. Oh, 2015. And, and bear in mind, I had, because of two Edinburgh shows, Caroline Raphael, who ran Radio 4 Comedy then, um, mm. said, oh, you could do a Radio 4 series about these big stories if you've got a couple more. And I said, I do. So we put together this series. And I didn't have a comedy agent at that point. My previous comedy agent had let me go saying, they won't let women on the telly. There's no point. There's no point. And he was always very depressing. <laughs> and um, when I got my own Radio 4 show, completely unrepresented with my name in the title, it was called Deborah Francis White Rolls the Dice. I thought, well, I'm sure quite a few agents now will at least want to come along and see the show and see if they're right for me. And the emails I would get back, and honestly, I swear to you, this was in 2015, I've got the emails. They would say, I cannot, I won't, I, literally, I won't come and see your show. I won't be coming to see your show um, because I, this, there's one that I've got that says, uh, because I cannot consider any one of the female persuasion. That might sound sexist, but it's not. It's not me that's sexist, it's the industry. The industry just won't take women. So what's the point of representing you? I already represent women. Another one said, um, we're a bit saturated girl-wise at the moment. And like, if you did that in 2015, if you sent that email in banking or law, you'd get fired and sued. Like, it wouldn't be allowed. But comedy is like madmen. Honestly, it's so behind. Um, Are these agents still in the business? Yep. So uh, I started The Guilty Feminist really as a response to a sort of create your own microclimate, create your own microclimate for success, you know, like, and I just thought, well, it's going to have a small audience, but if that audience love it, that's fine. Who cares? Was there a point when you suddenly thought to yourself, this is the thing I am now? Um, mm. This this has become a big part of me and I can take this in lots of different directions. It's the only tattoo I would get, which is guilty feminist. As I, I, you know, when people say, well, why don't you get a tattoo coming I'm like, because when I was 21, my tattoo would have said, I love Jehovah. Well, it, you know, you, you can move on in life. Who knows what, what it could be? That's the thing. It's like, I can't, I like, I can't, not that Jehovah's Witnesses are allowed tattoos. Don't be ridiculous. They're too much fun. Of course not. But, no. uh, uh, you know, when I was, or when I was 19 or whatever. Um, so, you know, I said, I don't know, I want a, some, a bit, something drawn on my body that I may completely renounce in five years' time or just think that's not who I am anymore. But that's, someone said the other day, you'd be safe to get a guilty firmness tattoo. And I said, yeah, actually, I think I would because I think it has changed me in so many fundamental ways that even if at some point I left it behind, it would it would always come with me. What about the first word? Guilty. So, yeah. Surely you don't feel guilty about anything. Oh. Women are trained to feel guilty from when we're very young. Um, it's a it's such a malaise, and especially I don't have children, but especially women who have children say that just live perpetually. If I'm with the children, I feel I should be focused on my career. If I'm at work, I should be with the children. Feminism had become one more thing to feel guilty about for a lot of women that they weren't doing it right, they weren't doing it well enough, they weren't putting enough effort in, and so a lot of women I think felt, you know, at this it's sort of when you know this contemporary. When this, when this quite recent um, movement of feminism started moving again, I suppose, in 2012, 2013, 
a lot of women were like, I want to get on board. That's how I was feeling. I desperately wanted to, but I wasn't sure I was good enough. I felt like I'm a feminist, but, and I remember Bridget Christie, who was a, is a feminist and comic that I admire very much saying, you'll never find your audience until you say the thing that you're too scared to say that no one else is saying. And I thought, well, that's all right for you, Bridget. What you've got to say is so brilliant. You're so sure. You're so strident. You're so funny with your certainty. And my thing is, I don't know that I'm doing it right. And am I qualified to do this? Or, you know, am I, am I good enough? And, uh, and if I, if my values and my actions don't always meet, then am I entitled? And so that's why the show starts with this cold open of I'm a feminist, but so, you know, a classic one that I think I did the very first episode was I'm a feminist, but one time I went on a women's rights march and I popped into a department store to use the loo and I got distracted trying out face cream. And when I came out, the march was gone. And I thought, well, the feminists probably kicked me out of the club now. But of course they didn't. You know, hundreds of thousands of women are going like, yes, I have also slipped off at a march. And God, this is too much. It's claustrophobic. And I've not gone back. You've you know, written about men um, saying, you really annoy me, but I'm staying with you because you make me laugh. Have there been, has there been stress from the other side? Have there been women going, I'm, I'm not it up for this? I'm yeah, a feminist. The thing about a podcast stuff. is the people who f- who f- love it find it and stick with it, and you're not really inflicted on anybody. You get a lot more. You know, if I go on telly, I'll always get like loads of tweets of women aren't funny and why are you on the telly and you annoy me. Uh, but that's what anyone on the telly gets, you know, especially women, any woman on the telly gets actually, but um, I'm sure some men get it as well. But with the thing about podcasting is people have to find it and they generally find it because a friend says, you'd like this, you'd love this podcast. And that's always a compliment. You, a person of quality, would love this podcast that I love. And nobody bothers if they don't like your show to listen to the whole thing so they can criticise it. Men's rights activists will not listen to a whole podcast. <laughs> that's true. They won't. Although that man that you, I think you're referencing, Lawrence, he was adorable. He wrote and said, I started listening to your podcast because I hate feminists yeah. and I wanted to know what the enemy was up to. But I have to say, 18 months later, you've worn me down. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> he said, I do other everyone who was into white, straight, uh, non-disabled, cisgender person. He said, I do, absolutely do. And I'm, I'm trying to stop that. Now I pull myself up. And he said, sometimes what you say still annoys me, but keep saying it because it's working. <laughs> I was like, why have you listened for 18 months? And I asked him and he went, this is funny. He said, even though the, some of the jokes were about people like me or attitudes like mine, couldn't stop laughing and then the armour comes off. So that's the power also of making it entertaining. And all the glorious comedians were able to get on it. It's such a, a joy. I know it is. It's a, it's a joyous listen. It's very, very funny. Um, do you feel you've moved the dial on the debate, on the conversation I think we've called a lot of people in. I think we've called, to, we've called, we've definitely called to arms. Like there are so many women who say, I didn't think I could call myself a feminist or I didn't want to call myself a feminist or I just didn't know those issues existed, you know, in the way that you've, your, you and your guests have laid them out. So I think we have created an accessible space where people don't feel they're going to get told off or they should already know more than they know. To have that kind of activated army of people that want to be together but don't feel intimidated to be in the space is so valuable and I'm so grateful for it every day. Um, I think it's fair to say, because you've actually said it in one of your episodes, that dessert is a feminist issue. Um, <laughs> so do you want to get your ice cream from the freezer? Do you know what I, I really did do. Yeah. So much. I'd forgotten about it. I'm so oh, yeah. delighted. I, I, I knew it was there. 
So, uh, do you know about Horlicks? Was that part of your childhood? Yeah, it's 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 that malty sleepy bedtime time drink. Sleepy time bedtime drink, and that's ice cream flavored with Horlicks. Oh my god, that's incredible! Um, I have to say, Mamalands doesn't do ice cream, or I'd be joining you. So instead, I'm just going to watch you. But you did an episode again early on of the Guilty Feminist, which was about food, and your challenge, I think, was to go and sit in a restaurant by yourself and order dessert. It was funny. I went to Patisserie Valerie, and the challenge was to order like three pieces of cake. <laughs> Good. Not, and not apologise. Not no, apologise. Because no. normally, um, I, you know, I, I, I remember actually once a waiter, I was having a good time with some friends and a waiter came along and said to me, will you be having dessert? And I said, no, I'm a woman. That's a private pleasure. And I, <laughs> there is a part of me that feels like that, that like, I don't want to sit in public and not really enjoy the cake I want to really focus on the cake. I don't want anyone else to be there. I want to like really focus on the cake. And this is all our absolute fucked up ways of looking at food because of every message we've ever had. It's ridiculous. But I knew that it would be a real challenge to order three pieces of cake and not make an apologetic face and not explain myself. I knew that it would be. And I, why? But why? That's mad. Why would it matter? I don't know the waitress. I don't know anyone else in the patisserie Valerie. Uh, even if I did, what would it matter? What if I went to what if I went to Patisserie Valerie with you and went, do you know what? I'm going to try three different kinds of cake. What if I did that? I would, of course, feel I needed to justify it because it's it's because of we've all got this baggage about food and especially women. I said, oh, I'm going to have a piece of the cheesecake, and she said, yes, young waitress came over and said, I'm going to have a piece of the cheesecake, and I could also have the lemon meringue pie, and I think I'll have a mm. I'll I'll have a piece of the uh, the the chocolate you know gatto or whatever. So, and I'm sitting there and, uh, and then she said, what a, and she said, do you want anything else? I said, yes, I'll have a hot chocolate, please, with, with whipped cream. And she said, everything for you. And she was like, so happy. I, I couldn't eat all, th- all three of these people. But I tried, I tried them all and I ate some of them all. And then, but also because weirdly, because I'd given myself permission to eat them all with relish. I was like, I was very aware of when I was full and when I'd had enough. Because I would, I'd given myself complete carte blanche to eat all of it if I wanted. So then at some point your body goes, oh, that's probably enough of that sweet thing. I don't really want any more. And it stops looking good, which, of course, if you're dieting, it never stops looking good. If you're, you know, you can have six pints of Hagenaz in the freezer and you always want a bit more and you always want a bit more because you're trying to die yourself. Um, it's like the hot priest in, in Fleabag. As soon as you say you can't have him because God's got him, that's you want him more and then more. Then you and want more. him. So... Um, so yes, so I, I eventually said to the waitress that when I picked up the bill, because I wanted to talk to her about it for the challenge, um, I said, was it un- I said, you reacted strangely when I ordered them. And she said, yes. And I talked about it, I kind of got it out of her and she went, yeah, the thing is when women order cake, they always do a little, a little dance around it. They, I shouldn't, shall I, should we share one? And I was, I shouldn't really. All right. Oh, well, just this once. Oh, I'll be naughty. She said, they always have to sort of justify it and she said they don't very rarely just order cake I said has a woman ever ordered um three pieces of cake or whatever I had and she said no never she said I said to men she said yeah all the time she said men will order multiple cake all the time and she said there was one woman once she was a Chinese woman but we all talked about it in the kitchen and I was like this is I mean this is where we are I mean three pieces of cake is quite excessive when Um, when I, I, I had a book out um available in paperback now uh about my last meal on earth going in pursuit of what I would have for my last meal on earth because all the typical candidates for your last meal are actually not in a fit state to eat it. They're terminally Mm. ill or they're suicidal or, you know, whatever. Um, And so I thought I'd get mine in now. 
And a lot of the women that I spoke to said, oh, well, I just have lots of cake because I could. Well, you're only going into Petitia with Valerie for one thing. It is a cake shop. That is what it is. It's not a restaurant where, oh, I might have a bit of cake. It is only for cake. But they'll come in and go, oh, I shouldn't really. Well, why did you come in? You knew what you were going to do. You're, you're trying to justify your right to cake, which is madness. If you're one of those people who spends hours in the kitchen knocking out culinary masterpieces, you'll want to be properly dressed for it. I know I do. Or perhaps you just want to convince your friends you're that sort of person without going to all the trouble of actually cooking. Well, now you can. How, you ask? By wearing the terrific official Logotastic out-to-lunch apron, of course, in gorgeous durable denim. It's so good, you'll want to go out in it. And if you do go out, let's face it, it's tough out there, so take your favourite podcast with you in the sturdy out-to-lunch travel cup, the perfect receptacle for your hot beverage of choice. See, not only will our lunch lubricated chats warm your ears, we'll also warm the rest of you. And when you get home and you've washed your out-to-lunch travel cup, try it with the out-to-lunch tea towel. So soft, you'll be snuggling up with it at bedtime. To see the range of merch and catch them all, head to outtolunch.backstreetmerch.com. That's outtolunch, all one word, dot backstreetmerch, all one word, dot com. Want to spend even more time with me? The paperback of my latest book, My Last Supper, is out now. Join me as I explore the landscape of our last meals on Earth, available from all good bookshops and a few bad ones too. But for now, let's go back out to lunch. I mean, you strike me as someone, in fact, you said it, because you, you did some lockdown interviews with the likes of Phoebe Waller-Bridge and so forth, where you said that you are someone constantly in motion. You're going towards an event or coming back from an event mm. or sorting out another event. And I assume you've been in, you know, in your home in North London for months. Have you enjoyed any of it or has it been exhausting? The first couple of weeks I was devastated. Like I had such an emotional reaction. I couldn't, I, I, it was like, have you ever tried coming off caffeine and had withdrawal headaches? No, because I believe uh, my addiction to caffeine is entirely fine. <laughs> well, fine. Listen, I believe in functional Sorry. addictions. I'm, I'm fine with it. But okay. um, I once came off caffeine. I had the terrible headaches, like terrible, terrible headaches. Um, it was like that. I got physical headaches, but I was being weaned off the caffeine of humanity, I think. I, I'm an extrovert. I love people. I get my energy from people. And I thought, how will I cope with this? But human beings are very adaptable. And uh, Tom and I, uh, my husband and I, live with a Syrian refugee who's like family to us. I mean, he is 100%. He's as much family to me as any other human being in the world. Steve's been living with you for a very long time, isn't he? Two, three years, two and four and years? Probably nearly three years now. We're three years in yeah. September. and But we are so close. And we, you know, it's because it, it's a very specific relationship um because you know he came to us at a time when you know he was in a he was he'd just you know been displaced for years and we have such great connection and very you know anyway he's like family to us and he talks to us about this about when life just changes very quickly so in his case a terrible war and then you find you're not an architecture student anymore who goes to the gym five times a week and loves fashion you are now a homeless person who is stateless and you are on the road and you don't know when you will have the right to a doctor or a lawyer or the air that you breathe again. And you, you adapt. Human beings are very, very adaptable. And then, you know, you come to London and you find your people, if you're lucky, and then 
you adapt and you, you know, his English is better than most native English speakers. You know, you adapt, you adapt, you adapt, you adapt. Uh, the hum- human being's ability to adapt is extraordinary. And early on, I thought, right, I've got to do something that's going to get me out of bed so I don't get depressed, make me get dressed and make me move. Because um, I've never been a big exerciser. I love yoga and I would do yoga two to four times a week before lockdown. But it's easy for me to sink into sedentary behaviour. And then I feel very depressed and not very in touch with my body. And I know it's not good for my brain. I know it's not good for me. And I thought all that just running around town that we used to do, that's all gone. If I'm just sitting on my sofa and walking to the fridge and back and, you know, walking to bed and back, that's not, it's not going to be enough. Um, And we were only legally allowed to leave the house once a day at that point. So I thought I'm going to take dance lessons because that's something I'd like to learn how to do. So I found a dance teacher who could teach me on Zoom. And I said, right, I want to do it every single day and uh, just have Sundays off. And she was like, every single day? I said, yeah, every single day. So I built up. So now I do two hours a day of either dance or one hour of personal training and one hour of dance. But now we're allowed back in studios as long as we're socially distanced. Melissa Bravo is a brilliant dancer, an amazing dancer, amazing teacher, very patient, brilliant teacher. Have you re-met her? In, have you now met her in yeah, real life? Yeah, yeah. What was that? I, it, was, it was like meeting a video avatar, video game. We were staring at each other. We'd met each other once before lockdown just to have that connection. And then it's I've been with her every single day on Zoom and it's weird. We were like staring at each other like you're 3D. We were like this. It was so weird. And we went into a studio for three hours and we're going in for another three hours on Monday because I'm really into it now. I absolutely love it. And, you know, we've, we've built up like routines and... And I absolutely love it. And it's got me through lockdown. And I said to Melissa, I was a bit tearful when I said goodbye to her the other day after the studio, because I said, you've really got me through lockdown. Without you, I don't know where I'd be. She can spend an hour teaching me body rolls, not something that comes naturally to my body, Jay. I don't mean to, I don't, I, I don't mean to be self-deprecating, but it's, it wasn't in my, my Well, I think it's something, I think it's something we share. Um, I'm not very good at body rolls either. Well, I can teach so, you now because I've got the skills. Can you see? Okay. Can you see how can I select yeah. my chest there? No, it's very now fluid. It can move. It can in all sorts of directions. I mean, this is this is this, so, this so, is pre- apart apart from anything else. This is premium content. It's wonderful um, podcasting. If you're listening at home, uh, what you were hearing was the sound of me popping my chest in various different directions, and it was impressive. It really, really was. Um, I think as you scoop away the last of your Horlicks ice cream, all, all that remains for me to say is, uh, Deborah Francis White, thank you for staying in for lunch with me. I do appreciate it. I really it. enjoyed it. I'm going to finish this. Mm. And if you're interested in trying that ice cream and all the other things for yourself, Deborah's lunch came from the curiously named Rice Error, the delivery arm of the Taiwanese restaurant group Bao in London. Mine came from Beijing street food cafe Mamalan in Brixton. And they're responsible for some truly fabulous chicken wings. I suspect, well, that may not be the last delivery I get from there. And if that wasn't enough, you can find a heap more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could give us, oh, maybe a five-star review and share us with all your mates, we'd be very happy. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Rosie Marotra. The producers are Hannah Newton and Selena Reem and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, I'll be heading out for lunch with Labour MP and our Shadow Justice Minister, David Lammy. I should say, though, for those listening, that I was also uh, 5% Scott. <laughs> Cutting side, did you at some point say to Gordon Brown's team? I did joke at a certain point that I was Scott, but it slightly, I think, went over Gordon's head. Mm.